Hello, and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from former Sundance Channel, AMC and MGM Network's president, Bruce Tuchman, about the launch of new independent film and TV streamer, Rialto International, and his predictions for 2021. And Ryan Chinatri, general manager of Topic, talks about the North American SVOD services first year in operation. Media entrepreneur Bruce Tuchman and New Zealand's Rialto Channel have set up a joint venture to launch an international streaming service featuring independent film and TV. Rialto International will roll out branded SVOD, AVOD and linear services worldwide with the first debuting in Australia through a partnership with Samsung. Tuchman, the former president of Sundance Channel Global, AMC Global and MGM Networks, serves as co-chairman and he spoke with Ruth Laws about the opportunities for such streamers, the viewership boost seen during the pandemic and the longer term challenges the sector faces. There's a space for independent film that presents an opportunity because as we're talking about independent film, it's still being produced and it's easier to get around COVID restrictions because it's just not this massive army that has to be sitting two feet away from each other. So that's happening. And then we're seeing with independent film, a surge in demand. I mean, look at what's won the Oscars just in the last few years, Um, Moonlight and of course, Parasite. So this is great demand for it. At the same time, as we're seeing the Hollywood, the big studio production, that's tightening up because they simply can't produce all this stuff anymore. So the demand curve has really shifted because of these things for independent film. People need content. They're not getting enough content in terms of movies from Hollywood. They need more content. Their customers are more interested in this stuff because they've been exposed to it in movie theaters. There's more of an appetite to see independent things. But the opportunity for us is while that's happening, there's so few service providers that are just focused on that on any mass way on independent film. And uh, so that's what we're we're looking at. We see a big opportunity in that to get in there is a huge vacuum. And I think, you know, my partners, myself, we we really know this space. We've been in it a long time. We've got a lot of credibility. Um, that's why we're really excited about, about what we're doing. And I think the streaming platforms have done something else, right? They've exposed people to content that when it was just the theatrical world, the exhibition world, putting out new content, they would never see because they're not going to the movie theater every night and watching three different movies. But some people are sitting at home doing that. And over time, as they were doing that, it was either promoted to them or they were just surfing around or checking things out. They started sampling independent stuff and they really liked it. You see that manifest itself in a lot of ways. In the US, a show like Fauda, people love it. It's, 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 a, it's a huge hit. And 10, 15 years ago, American audiences were not watching shows in foreign languages, period. But now there's this appetite because people have been exposed to it. Once they're exposed to it, maybe their original inclination is, I don't want to see something in a foreign language. And then they're like, this is the best show I ever watched. I want to see more stuff in foreign languages. So uh, that's happening with foreign language, but also with independent film. People have broke through whatever barriers that were up there and they're loving it and they want more. It's really fascinating, right? Another show, Money Heist or La Casa de Papel from Spain. 15 years ago, 10 years ago, you could bet your entire net worth that that would not succeed in this country because it's from Spain, it's in Spanish, forget it. And that show's done wonders for, for Netflix. 
products. So yeah, the reticence, the hesitation to pick up a foreign product in languages different than the market that it's airing in, again, that barrier has been breached and, and it's really changed a lot of things. People are fine with that now. And in some instances, there are huge hits available. And from the economic side, a lot of that product is a lot less expensive to buy than the mainstream product or the product in your own language. With you know various parts of the world going back into lockdown, um, what is the impact on development, production and distribution? Right. Um, so obviously, in terms of production, depends on the country and how severe their lockdowns are. But again, it's going to impact new production, but it's going to impact the bigger projects that require lots of crew, lots of cast. It's just impossible to manage that with COVID on. But on the other hand, stuff we're doing like independent film and things like that doesn't often require that much manpower. And so that kind of stuff will continue to be done. But I think we are going back, not everywhere, but in some places to a situation that we had back in March or April of last year, where literally things are just getting shut down. So that's going to be impacted. But also, as we've seen already through the various stages of the lockdowns we've had around the world, viewership will go up because, I mean, doesn't sound like there's lots of other alternatives. So naturally, one gravitates to the television out of default. And so do you think there will perhaps be more appetite or more opportunity for smaller indie productions as opposed to huge shows? Do you think, you know, that will change the broadcast landscape in the sense that, you know, people perhaps will watch things that are less commercial? Absolutely. And it's also just a question of supply. I'm not seeing the independent film space. uh, I'm not seeing any, you know, turning off of the spigot of new production. So that's all still coming out. So while that's there, what we're also seeing with big productions or big Hollywood films or big TV shows, they're not being done. So there's not a lot left in terms of new stuff. Um, So this is actually a very good opportunity for independent film. Um, And how do you think it will affect distribution? Do you think, you know, different things will be sold or there'll be people be trying to sell their back catalog? There'll be, you know, less new content out there on the market? Um, No, I mean, right now for top notch or, you know, people who have compelling content, arguably it's never been better because people are sitting home and just in the last year, you've seen some huge streaming platforms launch like HBO Max and Peacock. They're spending so much money, all these platforms, they have all this money out there. They need content. They're not channels, obviously, that could have a limited amount of content that can have, you know, a TV channel could have a few hundred movies in a whole year. A a streaming platform has to have thousands of things in there. So there's so much demand from these platforms and there's so many people watching that obviously that that demand is huge. The supply is tight. Prices are going way up. It's it's a good place to be. But people shouldn't get used to it. The vaccine is out there. The world is going to look very different a year from now. So I think it's important. No one should be patting themselves on the back and thinking they're just so great. Their content's so great. It's all owed to that. Perhaps it's great, but what it's really owed to is people are watching and not as many people may be watching as often a year from now. Last year also, due to the pandemic, there was a huge growth of AVOD and SVOD streaming services, as you kind of touched upon. What do you think this will mean for legacy players? And will this trend continue in the post 
lockdown world when there is a vaccine? So there's been this prognostication for several years now that linear is dead or dying. And while in some markets, like your market, like the US, you do see cord cutting, when you look at it globally in the aggregate, pay TV, linear, it's still growing. So I see it as probably a more a more fiercely competitive environment that's emerging. Clearly, with launches of new SVOD services and streaming services, people who have been watching Linear are going to check some things out. But Linear will stay. It's going to stay a long time because if you think about it, they say that always about every form of media when a new form of media comes out, that it's going to wipe it out. They've said that about radio. They've said that about broadcast TV when cable came out. There's going to be broadcast but but it stays around the um size of the market may shrink a little but it seems to stay and the best competitors do very well in that environment so in the u.s for instance the broadcast networks 30 years ago had the huge majority of all the eyeballs in the country. That's not the case anymore. Yet they figured out how to be really competitive in that environment and they've probably never been doing better. So I I see that's going to continue with linear. There's still huge millions and millions and tens of millions and actually hundreds of millions of people out there. It's just going to be, you know, a lot more competitive to keep their attention and um, keep up with what's going on in the streaming and do you think some of the well-established and immensely popular streamers such as, you know, Netflix, do you think they should be concerned with all these fledgling streamers um, now becoming available like Discovery Plus? Um, yes and no. These fledgling streamers, to the extent they're niche streamers, they're going to operate with many less subscribers by the tune of millions and millions. They're just focused on a niche. If they think they're going to get the kind of subscriber base that Netflix has, they're kidding themselves. But even even with that out there, of course, someone may decide, you know what, I've been seeing banners on my Facebook page for Discovery Plus, I'm going to watch it. They may have been watching Netflix that night. So there could be some erosion. But the reality is, it seems pretty clear, no one's going to come in and be Netflix. I mean, Disney's doing great. Peacock and HBO Max, I'm, I'm sure will do great. But Netflix is as popular or more so than ever. They keep growing subscribers. That That is unassailable. And major studios are retaining content now for their own services. How do you think this will impact the distribution sector? Yeah, it, look, it takes things off the table. And think about, if you will, long-term customers, third parties of these studios who for decades have had deals, output deals, standard operating procedure. They're always buying content. And now they're saying, wow, this is being pulled away. So what, what's the implications of that? It means these third-party channels and businesses, it's going to be tougher for them. And they're also going to be quite angry. The cozy relationship and the strong, solid partnerships they've had over decades are going to fray and maybe fall apart. Also, for the companies that are taking all of their production and just putting on their streaming platforms, the mentality is, you know, we're doing that because we're making this huge investment in the streaming platform. We got to keep all of our content. They already acknowledge in the short term, they're going to make less money from it. But in the long term, they'll be great. But you know what? Maybe they won't be. It, it's not clear. Netflix has done great. It's still not clear in the streaming world if there's a lot of great models for success. It's too new. 
so many more things are launching and failing or losing tons of money. So it's a really risky and perhaps cocky belief that, wow, if I just keep my own product, we're going to grow this business so big, it will compensate for the loss of the short-term cash that we used to get by selling the stuff to third parties. That that may not ever come to fruition. So it could wind up really hurting the, the companies that are keeping all of their production to themselves. And what do you think the main reasons are for failure in this space? For failure, I think it's it's because a couple things. What you had and have in the world of pay TV, particularly channels that are on lower basic tiers, they don't have to go out and acquire subscriber by subscriber by subscriber to make up that number. It's a different business. It seems like it's similar to channels versus streaming platforms, but it's really not unless the channel is an a la carte channel. But for most channels, they weren't doing the heavy lifting. And there were tons of them being offered. And the platform was usually bearing the brunt of the marketing, but they had so many things to offer. And over the course of many years, um, so many of these platforms have built up such a large amount of subscribers. So when you get to the world of streaming platforms, you got to build your business one subscriber at a time. It's hard to get their attention. There is so much stuff out there. And then the model that's been created, the model that's been created is easy cancellation, which is funny because the old world of pay TV was really hard to cancel. You know, you were locked sometimes into these contracts for a while, but for so many reasons that did not happen in the streaming world. So it's not only hard to keep these or, or acquire these subscribers, it's very easy to lose them. We've made it so easy for people to just drop things. So it's that model that's really difficult and you have to spend tons of money to acquire subscribers. There's a lot of money that you have to, that you have to spend to acquire a subscriber. And I think for many services, the amounts they're spending, they're not getting a return on investment. They can't hold on to those subscribers or build enough subscribers. So it's a real tough business model. It is not proven yet. Netflix proves that Netflix can do really well. Doesn't say anyone else can. And what do you think would make a streamer successful, particularly in this new coronavirus, post-coronavirus world? In the post-coronavirus world? Well, it's like it's always been, whether it's pay TV or movies or broadcast, it, it's just the quality of the content and the competence of the marketing of that, comp uh, of that content. So more streaming services are out there competing for product. So it's going to be harder to get so much compelling content all the time. It's going to be just harder due to the numbers, but that's what it's going to be all about. It's going to be the successes, the quality of the content and how well you can spread the word and, you know, grab people's attention. Back to major studios, they're also skipping theatrical windows. How do you think that will impact the distribution sector? You know, you read so much about what is going to happen to theatrical. You know, are people going to get really used to not bothering anymore, going to the to the movies, it's expensive, you know, especially for families, you got to hire a babysitter, you go out and have dinner. And now with every year, our, our television sets are getting even so much better and bigger and 4K and 8K and great surround sound. So there's one school of thought that says those trends now are obviously accelerating while movie theaters are closed in many places, but people are going to get so used to it, it will never bounce back the way it used to be in movie theaters. I don't know if I subscribe to that dire uh, theory. I think when we get back into a normal world, people are going to return to the things they like doing. In fact, they're going to return with real passion. So there's a big future, I still think, for the theatrical world, although I 
I think there will be some erosion because there will be some people, as I just mentioned, who realize, no, I'm perfectly content just watching this stuff at home. But how does it impact the distribution world? It really does. Because if you think about subsequent windows after the first run, if your first run is on a closed streaming service that has a limited amount of subscribers, that hasn't been in every theater around the world for people to talk about and hear about, it's going to be less valuable when you take it off your streaming service if you do that and sell it in subsequent windows to third parties. It's just not going to be the same. You know, a, a, a huge, wonderful, big budget superhero movie gets so much attention around the globe. There's so much excitement. So many people go out and see it. But if you take that same film and you put it on a streaming service that has 20 million or 30 million subscribers, it's like, you know, that old adage about a tree falling in the woods. But if no one's there, do you hear anything? No one's going to know about this stuff. And what's the impact of industry events like TV and that day moving online? That's a big question. I think, again, when this lifts, people are going to really, really be excited about going back to these markets. It's the human connection part. You mentioned MIP. People do like hanging out in the south of France. They're always going to. They're going to really prefer that over like what we're doing today. I'm sitting in my apartment. It's not the same as sitting in the south of France at a nice cafe. People are going to really want to do that. However, companies are going to be much tighter on that because whoever's controlling the purse strings will say, well, you know, it seemed to work just fine when it all went virtual. Tell us how business has been decimated by not doing this stuff in person. And if we do it in person, it's going to cost $10,000 to send you. So we're only going to send two people and we're not going to invest in building a big booth because what what's that giving us? So those events will have to change, I think, because of that. I just don't think there'll be after this a possibility to draw the same amount of people at the same cost to go out there. And it's it's really similar just to, in general, office space. People are seeing, seems to be working with people working from home. We invest so much money into rent, furnish, outfitting these offices. Let some people stay home. We'll save that money on rent. And a lot of those people, we're not even buying them equipment. They're using their own computer and printer. So it's the same idea. It's not going to be that people don't want to go to these events, as I said, but it's going to be tough pulling in the same amount of people for the same amount of money. So do you think that the cost doesn't necessarily justify the value that they may bring because everyone, as it's been proven, can do everything online? Yeah, I think so. And even before COVID, for years, people have been saying that. People have always been saying, wait a minute, it's costing so much. There's really not always a clear connection between such an increase in business because we've invested so much money into these markets. So there's always been some skepticism about that, but people did it because there's almost superstition. We've been doing it this way forever, but more importantly, all of our competitors are doing that. So if we decide to do something different, God forbid, we didn't think about something and we get wiped out. There's those illusions now have kind of blown up. So it, it's a different world for these big events, which also means, ironically, you'd think, okay, so for these big events, just lower the price of attending, somehow get all the surrounding hotels and restaurants to lower their prices. We got to get lower prices to bring people in. That makes sense. But the organizers may have to invest even more just to get people to come, right? Because I don't know, hypothetically, here's some event. We're in this new world. We got to get people out of their homes and back these markets. So let's let's bring in Lady Gaga and let's do this and that. Let's make sure we hand everyone an iPad just 
to make things work easily. So they're going to have to put more money and marketing into getting people when there's less of a revenue opportunity for them. It's it's not a pretty scene. With all that said, there's some things that are just are so culturally iconic, like the Cannes Film Festival or Sundance. I don't think those ever go away, but it'll be tougher even for them. And on the margins, the marginal conferences and things like that, they're bleak, bleak future. And what do producers, networks, platforms, distributors all need to do to survive this turbulent period? So they have to up their game because I think people have to be really cognizant that this increase in viewership because of COVID will be a blip, ultimately significant one. It'll be a year or two. But the challenge is when people start thinking they have increased viewership because of inherently that rather than this bigger macro thing that's going on, that's a danger zone. So what I think people should be doing now is thinking about how they up their game. Can't wait. You got to be thinking about it now because, you know, I just think about this country and I don't know if it's a year from now or six months from now, but when everyone's allowed to leave their homes, well, they're not watching TV when they do that. And there's going to be such pent up anticipation to go back out there and enjoy life is going to be a real challenge for viewership. So if you've gotten this increased viewership, you cannot count on it staying around. So what do you have to do? You have to figure out how to maintain that viewership. And that means you got to up your game. You got to invest in content. Um, You got to keep these folks happy or else there's just more alternatives you have to deal with. You're you're not competing with a hundred streaming platforms and a thousand channels. You're also competing with people who want to get out of their homes. And do you think that will affect the type of content? Do you think once people are are liberated, if you like, the things that they watch will change? Yeah, that's a good question. Maybe for some folks, there'll be less of a desire to invest time into series that have multiple seasons and there's 150 hours they have to watch. They had the time before. They just may not have the time anymore. So maybe it has it has to go back to just big events or just something splashy just to really get people to decide, I'm not going to go out. I'm going to do this because this is, this is great. I can't miss this. It all goes to the point that people have to now up their game to keep their subscribers and their viewers once this is all lifted. And do you think production will return to how it was pre-COVID? Do you think, you know, there'll still be huge numbers of, you know, crew members on set or do you think because you know producers have learned to create content with smaller teams that that will stay certainly that'll stay for a lot of producers i'd say especially in the independent world that's always been the point of it um if figuring out always how to make something look great on a shoestring and to the extent we're learning more and more how to do that that'll happen but for the big hollywood stuff It'll go back to how it used to be. That's how they do it. And uh, yeah, I, I, I don't see I don't see that that changing. I think it it flips right back. And I think it flips right back because currently, with all of these big streaming platforms having launched and it being in, in an arms race with each other and spending billions of dollars on content, if you are lavishing investment and in producing great big marquee content, there, there's a, still going to be a big market for that. What do you think buyers will be? On- on the lookout in the post-coronavirus world? I think a couple of things will happen. I think in some instances, again, they'll assume the patterns that have been established in the last 10 months will continue. So seems like, you know, big kind of off-the-wall series like Tiger King or something. Let's keep doing things like that. Uh, but again, I, I think it behooves them to adopt an idea that things are different now, um, now that this is lifted. Um, and again, you have to up your game. You just have to 
to be obsessively focused on your viewer, understand how their lives now have changed and how do you keep their attention. Um, so it won't be business as usual simply because I think for a lot of content, they've gone away with a lot because people are just sitting home and they're exhausting every series that they've seen. So they'll pick up something that they would never have watched in normal circumstances. And we're going to return to that. So you just can't rest on your laurels that have been established during this time of COVID. So a buyer's got to be thinking about that. There's got to be something extra here. I, I have to keep these eyeballs. And finally, are there any other issues, threats or opportunities that you think the industry will face in 2021 and beyond? I guess we kind of will go back to how things were a year ago. And the opportunities remain the same. There's this big emergence of all of these streaming platforms. I don't see that dying down. I think that will go on for a while. But I'd say it's more about challenges than opportunities because these streaming wars, this investing billions of dollars of content because the other guys are doing that, can they keep doing that? Not all of them, even these big new streaming platforms, they may not all survive or they may not be the size that they thought it would be. They may realize after four or five years, wait, we'll never break a profit with this cost base. We have a lot of subscriber, that's great, but we're nowhere near Netflix and it's hard to keep these subscribers. We've got to invest so much money into it. So I think we're in and will return big time into kind of this bubble of spending. But the challenge is it's foolhardy to think that will continue. It's similar to what happened with home video 15, 20 years ago. That was pumping so much money and profit into so many producers. People thought this would go on forever. Every year, more stuff was being sold. The demand continued. And then it fell off the cliff. And what do you do? So I don't think streaming services will fall off the cliff, but there's a lot of folks out there. They're not going to have more than four or five years to prove they have a viable business. What we're seeing with this model, it's really hard to be successful. There'll be a lot of failures. Those failures will drop out of the market and consequently, there'll just be less money chasing after content. So content producers and distributors will ultimately face a much tougher market. They can't expect automatically every year without doing anything, sitting in your office, demand will increase. It, it will hit a wall eventually. Bruce Tookman from Rialto International talking with Ruth Laws. Ryan Chinatri is General Manager of North American SVOD service Topic, which recently celebrated its first year in operation. Owned by First Look Media, the streamer aims to appeal to the culturally curious and has been busy snapping up programming, venturing into originals and co-productions with the international community. Chinatri spoke to Gunnar about Topic's first 12 months, the traction it's achieved amid the coronavirus pandemic and the challenges of building audience in such a competitive market, plus its ambitions for the coming year, including more co-pros, not only with European partners, but further afield. We've had, a, I think, a fantastic first year. And across that time, we've been able to bring quite a few new series and films to you know, the North American audience. And we've seen great reception through most, if not all of those, which has been exciting. And that's really given us the confidence that we have hit on a desire in North America among you know, the audiences we intended to reach for a concentration of these types 
types of stories, stories that surprise you, that take you to places you, you know, don't expect to be able to experience, that show you points of view from other countries and life experiences and situations. And that's really uh, where we see our focus, you know, continuing to be as we move into year two. Um, so that's that's been, you know, really wonderful to see, to see the reaction from our customers to say, hey, I've been looking for something like this to see see them recognize the time and curation we've put in to assembling what we have in our library and give us credit for that has really helped us know that you know we're on the right track and we're we're forging a relationship and creating a brand here that we think has a, a long future in the market. What was striking was that you, you wanted to launch into a, a an SVOD space with niche offering targeting sort of if I can put it in scare quotes culturally curious viewers does that remain your core audience group or do you think the last year has taken you beyond or or away from that core mission no i think it's only reinforced it i feel like the subscribers who we are resonating with are very much the curious explorers who want to be connected to the world who are looking for different points of view who see the programming we have on other services but don't see enough of it don't see the titles that we're bringing you know it's wonderful when we have people writing in and asking us when something is coming uh, because it again kind of confirms the fact that there is interest in these stories that didn't have homes in North America and what kind of stories and titles are you bringing to viewers that they are not able to get anywhere else yeah I guess it's less about the genre because I think you can find you can find a little bit of everything across all of the streamers. But I think elevated suspense and thrillers is really where we're seeing a lot of interest in addition to uh, some of the true crime and documentary uh, offerings that we have. And of course, you know, crime, mystery, thrillers, all of that is available in many different places. But I think we're identifying and zoning in on a particular version of that space, which is stories that kind of keep you at the edge of your seat that show you these types of kind of maybe uh, what would be tropes in many cases, but have been reimagined, reinvented, told in less stereotypical or uh, traditional ways, flipping roles. You know, I think crime and mystery is a great genre to do that with because it's both rooted in so many of the problems of representation on screen that Hollywood has sort of perpetuated and is now working to reverse while at the same time being just inherently engaging to us as humans. So we're excited that that's worked really well because we think there's a tremendous opportunity to continue to push that space forward and to bring, you know, this this can cover stories of cultural lore, right? Stories of criminal justice reform, stories of inequality, like all of that can be represented really well, both in scripted and unscripted, from sci-fi to traditional crime to human relationship drama that might be rooted in a mystery. So there's such interesting spaces to explore here that I think Topic as a Service has does have a unique point of view on. And our audiences seem to respond well to that. And we are now just going to work with that, you know, and really see in year two, we're not changing anything per mm-hmm. se. We're just uh, kind of honing in on uh, how we think about ourselves, how we communicate with our audience and how we ensure we're finding all of the people we know are out there that love this. And it's that's the hardest part of this, right? Is there's 
so much noise in the market. There are so many services and offerings and even the niche services that have done tremendously well, like BritBox and Acorn and Shutter and, you know, competitors we respect, they still have huge audiences and we're only at the beginning of that journey. So we see this immense opportunity to really capture that space, a space that is differentiated from the other niche players that sits nicely complementary for our audience with the Netflixes and the Hulus and the Apples, um, but gives them something really to dig deep into when they when they're looking to fulfill that entertainment desire. Are you able to talk a little bit about how many subscribers you've attracted so far and and what your growth trajectory is? And I mean, you said you know if anything, the pandemic has reinforced your proposition, and that obviously with people trapped at home, they're looking for alternative stuff all the time, and that you know they they want to they want the broadest possible experience from a range of different sources. So are you able to talk a little bit about, you know, how how it's gone on the subscription business model front and what your expectations are in year two? Yeah, unfortunately, nothing specifically, but I can say that we, we've we grown steadily week over week across the, the year, basically, since our launch. We're ahead of our own internal plan, which has given us a lot of confidence and the sort of momentum we wanted to see to continue to push forward. And we think that we launched in probably the toughest competitive year of SVOD, while at at the same time having the benefit that one of the few fortunate benefits of sort of the COVID and isolation situation, as tragic as that has been, it it has meant, as you said, that people are looking for alternatives. So we're sort of balancing this strange competitive dynamic with the world. Um, But what what we see is, you know, we're only scratching the surface on what we want to bring to our audience. And we feel like as we get better at releasing, at marketing, at identifying exactly the titles that we know will resonate out of the launch gate, we we really do expect into next year we should continue to grow and hopefully even accelerate. And, um, you know, we're not trying to be a 10 million subservice. So we're just trying to find a really solid set of the expected audience universe we think there is out there that, that loves to have us. You know, we really are, we're as much in this for sort of the passion of being able to be a unique place in the market, especially for filmmakers to tell these types of stories. There aren't a lot of options for new and emerging filmmakers, for people to experiment, to take risks. So a lot of what we're trying to do too is provide stability so that we can be a really strong alternative in the market and a complement to the work Netflix is doing in this space and the longstanding traditions of PBS and raising up independent filmmaking voices. Uh, You know, there just aren't many alternatives. So we're excited that all of that seems to be kind of slowly clicking into place and giving us the opportunity to to stay ahead of it while still, you know, have lots of opportunities to optimize our, our growth. I mean, after all, uh, you're still here and, and famously Quibi isn't. Yeah, that has been uh, fascinating to kind of observe as, as someone in the side, you know, on the sidelines, but also deeply connected to, to the industry. Yeah. Um, yeah, that is an interesting case for us all, I think over the the next couple of years. Particularly because last time we spoke, you had laid out that you launched with a a package of about three, four hundred hours. You were refreshing with one or two series per month plus features. And then you've got a a steady stream of factual originals in the unscripted space and some feature docs and this. What for you, in, in terms of the overall mix on topic at the moment, what for you are the priorities? Great question. I mean, I think we want to continue to have a little bit of 
everything, uh, I think it, it, it does provide us a little, you know, a, a slight distinction or differentiation and learns from some of the um, previous cases of services that have come and gone when they maybe got too specialized in one particular area and couldn't kind of sustain that. You know, I think our, our scripted uh, series remain primarily the tent poles, but we are excited uh, to have a couple um, bigger unscripted series. So we'll look to find that right mix of scripted and unscripted. We're moving into our exclusive film a week initiative. So basically every week there will be an exclusive premiere of a film on on topic, a range from documentaries like Bellingcat and American Dharma, which we've put out to a narrative films like uh, Once Upon a Time in Venezuela, uh, Venezuela's election for this year's Oscars to Naomi Gold, which is just an amazing, you know, film about a young woman navigating her, uh, you know, unusual life circumstances. So we think that is a really strong calling card, both to the filmmaking community, but to the people in the world who love these sort of under the radar doc and indie that are difficult to find. We look to kind of see what's out there, what's gaining traction, what isn't getting a home, what we love, you know, the intersection of all of those things. I think that will take more time for us to really build the audience cred in that space because there are lots of options and um, it is a noisy space for film with Criterion and movie and all of the streamers, but we're confident in where we're headed with our selections and we think that will really start to articulate itself on its own. We're continually monitoring this between kind of bringing in audience with the big scripted um, drama and comedy and then hopefully retaining them with sort of complementary programming that is wrestling with similar issues and sometimes factually, sometimes not. And we're just trying to find that strong thread that continues to make sure everything feels like it uh, lives together on the platform. But we'll, we will probably start to hone in more and more, right? As we understand the audience better, as we get more viewing data, we'll you know make certain decisions about what to double down on, what to maybe concentrate less on. But I do feel strongly that we want, you know, we want to be well known for something specific, uh, but we don't want to necessarily only offer that one thing because we think that we uniquely are able to bring such a range of stories through our our acquisition network, our filmmaking network, our production history. And we don't want to be in a position where we're having to turn down something we feel like our audience needs to see because it doesn't fit so squarely on some type of filter we've defined for ourselves. So as you come to trust us, it's like, okay, well, normally you've been watching these titles, right, over and over again, but suddenly there's a comedy. Like, why is Topic bringing me this comedy? We hope that you are surprised and delighted by that and enjoy it versus being like, oh, that's not for me or I don't understand why it's on, you know, on the surface. So that, but that's a, a lot to ask of the audience and requires a relationship to be built, which, you know, for many of our subscribers, we're only a few months in. And, you know, there's a long road to kind of get to that level of understanding with each other. Sticking a moment with insights into viewer data in your first year, any surprises? And, and are you able to share some highlights or, or top line stuff? We've been pleasantly surprised with the fact that what we hoped would do well and resonate really has. You know, our our you know we've we've seen some of the big international dramas that we think 
we knew did well in those markets, but hadn't hadn't had a lot of interest over here. We've seen that when we bring them and position them right, they are our top performers. And that's very exciting because again, it gives us that confidence when the next one comes along to fight for it and bring it to topic, especially with HBO Max and Peacock launching in between this time. The natural space for foreign language programming, you know, international stories has expanded. Both of those platforms launched with quite a few additional international language originals. So that's put a little bit of pressure on some of what is available in the market, but we still see the things that are doing well for us differently from what those streamers are picking up. And we think that we can really serve this kind of high elevated international thriller crime drama. So I think the most that we can share is that that zone is doing very, very well. We've seen similar success with some of the, you know, films in that general space, factual films or or scripted retellings of things that are rooted in mystery. I'd say anytime there's a really strong thread of sort of what went on, even if it's not told in a traditional crime, you know, we don't do procedural crime. That's something we are consciously uh, looking to stay away from because we think there are an amazing options in the market for that. That That's not a need that we imagine people have. It's f- fulfilled in wonderful places, but we think elevated serialized crime, you know, is wide open when interpreted with a, with a much bigger lens than maybe traditionally speaking. Are you able to cite one or two examples of titles? It's just uh, distributors out there, some clue about the kinds of things that perhaps they should be approaching you with. Should that be, you know, should that happen? Sure. I mean, I think the things we're excited about are things that we have second seasons coming. So those are programs like Pagan Peak or Dare Pass from Beta. Uh, we have a second season that's in production of uh, Arctic Circle, which is Alisa's um, series that we're part of now with Laga Dared. You know, those two, I think, are really strong. You know, uh, actually a show that I can mention that did surprise us in a way with its performance was Salamander, slightly older show uh, in yep. terms of when it was released, but, you know, is done very, very well for us. And I think is the type of story we feel like we'd love to see different takes on from people out in the world who are working on such things. Sako and Mangane is another, also from Lagardère. It's a French Senegalese co-production. I think that's a great example of taking a genre, bringing element that certainly in North American audiences don't see much of, which is sort of the African lore and storytelling, layering in the crime, you know, element to it. A lot of great components to that. That I would say if someone has a series that is checking a lot of those same boxes, doing something slightly different than the norm, we love to hear about it. But we play in so many spaces, so I don't want to prevent anyone from you can if you can envision it on topic, then we wanna we wanna hear about it. So and we do love comedy as well. We have a couple great comedies. We've seen good success with a title like Monogamish to date, and uh, we're excited to launch Parliament, which has been a you know big success mm-hmm. in France and Belgium and the UK. And that's an example of kind of in our comedy genre, we really look for what I call like messy human relationship dynamics that are being told unfolded, you know, are unfolding on screen. We look for relatable global themes, even in a local comedy, right? It can be as long as it's, it's not too highly localized, but has some of those just typical human dynamics. We think, you know, those will work well for our audience. How about co-productions? Because you, you mentioned Arctic Circle too. Do you, do you see a role for topic, uh, especially when it comes to the, the, the foreign language scene and and the, the so, 
sorts of dramas that are being developed in this this era where companies having to come together during the pandemic in order to gain access to very scarce production resources. Yeah, no, we are thrilled with that model. We think it's a a vital element to our long-term success is finding like-minded creative partners who are able to bring territories to the table, whether that's distributors or partnering directly with, with channels or production companies and us being able to offer creative and production and financing assistance, you know, in exchange for knowing that we're going to launch a what will hopefully be a global piece of IP. The Nordic broadcasters, of course, have done this tremendously for many years. We are the home of Peacemaker. We weren't in early enough on that one, but I think that's an example of a future model where there was five or six markets pre-committed to that project, you know, and that's amazing. That just gets the thing done very quickly for everyone. So we're excited to now be in those conversations a year in, right? That that the market knows who we are and the channels understand kind of what we're programming and what we can work with them on. We're, we're working on a, a couple right now um, and we have a bunch more that we're evaluating. So we hope to, yeah, we think that there'll be more uh, co-productions or in some cases, maybe more pre-buys that we can, you know, I think we, we also love that because it shows our audience we're committed to this type of storytelling and we're we're investing in it and we want to push that beyond Europe too a big part of our focus in the next couple of years is to participate in Asia and Africa and you know South America and find these stories and figure out who's doing a great job of surfacing them and beginning to invest and so our catalog is well rounded and really represents a shared global experience Ryan Chinatri from Topic talking to Gunnar Hughes That's all for this episode. There'll be more from the podcast tomorrow. But in the meantime, stay safe and up to date with all the latest international TV industry news by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 